You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. (laughs) Our intros are getting longer and longer, which there's some market for, and there's some that don't want it. But we just had our interview fail right in the middle of it. Our guest device died and it's not coming back online. So we are instantly starting a Q&A since we've had a lot of questions building and we're not chit-chatting at all. We're going right to it. You don't want to hear about our boring lives. You just want to get right to the good stuff, don't you folks? That's right. There is no chit-chat. Question number one. Oh, 35 second intro bracken since we started talking. That's amazing. Go ahead. I'm a new dad. Son is three weeks old. I'm looking to maintain and work on my running fitness as I have an ultra coming up in Blue Mountain, Canada. I figure I'll drop down to open from age group slash elite where I normally run with the limitations of fatherhood, but I can only get out maybe three days a week for a run. Any suggestions with limited time? Sorry, I should have said I normally get up to about 30 to 40 K a week with a speed work and an interval fartlek run. The rest are easy runs. So new father, three-week-old son, got an ultra coming up in Blue Mountain, Canada, which is a ski resort and can run three times per week. What do we do? Well, my first thing is I don't think you should drop down. I think that you can do this. I don't think you should drop down. I think you can do this with three days. I'll start with that. I'll let you go. And then I have some thoughts. All right. As the resident father in the building. (laughs) That we know (laughs) (laughs) there is real power to running pushing a stroller real power to that it adds extra engagement all the way down that rear chain so stop immediately at the limiting myself to three days a week maybe you can only get out three days a week for yourself but your son needs to nap and children can be trained to fall asleep in a stroller but what about an infant at three weeks? Do you say oh, three yeah. weeks or month? Infants, you can take three them outside. Well, here's around. what you do. You've got your you've got your car seat that has that five four point harness in it that keeps a baby safe in a car accident. So you take that and you insert that into the stroller and you strap them the car seat into the stroller. And then, I mean, we were doing. I was coaching track at the time. I was doing uphill and downhill work with the kids. I was running. Uh, 200s, 400s, 600s on the track with Braden strapped into the stroller, cranking the turns. You can do it. Okay. All right. How how young was your youngest in age when you actually put them in the stroller for a run at like, was it that early on? Oh, yeah. 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 Strapped into the car seat, strapped into the stroller. Wow. Okay. Well, 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 my, my advice there is I don't have the stroller, um, experience, but I'm doing the three day a week run program. And I believe that if the puzzle pieces are moved correctly, it can be done. You can still do exactly what you outlined, sir. Like you can do your long run, you can do a quality session and you can do a skill work day or something in between or an extra recovery run. Um, And you've put together yourself like a pretty good training plan that's going to get you 80 to 90% of the way there. If you're lucky enough, if you have a spin bike or something that you can just use in the house when you still have eyes on little one, you have yourself a full complete training plan, but you just can't lose sight of the principles of training. And that is get up, get time on feet, at least one run a week, 
get quality stuff as fast or faster than race pace and then fill it with recovery and maybe a little auxiliary work. But like, I think, um, I don't see any reason why it can't be done as long as you can keep your eyes open for it. Yeah. You make one of the big ones big. You get, you swing it hard. Like we've talked about, and then you fit in little micro workouts throughout there. I did this with Braden. I did a lot of lunging and squat pulsing when he was a baby. 10, 15, 20 minute sessions of constant quarter lunges, half lunges, squat pulses, and it just bulletproofs your legs. It doesn't necessarily help your endurance or your cardiovascular system, but it bulletproofs the cramping areas of your legs. And then you can do little things like we have 13 stairs in our house. I've done a a 20, 30, once I did a 70 minute stair workout up and down the stairs, 13 stairs, up and down, fast feet, fast feet, fast feet the whole time. It's obnoxious, but you can do it. If you got 20 minutes, run up and down your stairs for 20 minutes and you piece together those little extra pieces because what a baby does is it segments your life. It takes this beautiful, pristine day you have and it chops it up into scramble mode, but you have these little, like you come up for air at little times. And instead of plopping down on the couch or cracking a beer or open up a bag of Cheetos, you crack open some lunges or you open up a bag of stairs. That's what you do. <laughs> crack open some lunges. Yeah, crack them open. Nice. All right. I, I got a fun fact for you. Do you know that in my first fitness job, I was an intern at the YMCA in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, and I my one of my classes I taught was stroller aerobics. So at my first job, I taught stroller aerobics. I also taught senior water aerobics. And then I did a few step classes, which was uh, a whole site in itself. But stroller aerobics, you use the stroller and you use the baby as your resistance. And so, sir, if you need some help coming up with ideas, you got a certified professional stroller aerobics instructor here to help you. So slide into my DMs, man. I got some ideas for you. There is no better core workout than doing one holding a baby. Because you got to keep them moving. You know what I thought was interesting in um, the Olympic trials coverage? First of all, Kara Goucher killed it. Yeah, uh, Like did. killed it, killed it. But second of all, um, they were talking about some of the new moms and how like mom hip was a thing for the runners. And I never really thought about that, They're carrying their kids on the same hip. And then it's almost a, a very common mom runner overuse problem. Paul Chalimo had mom hip. Paul, Paul Chalimo had yeah dad hip, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. it's just an interesting thing I didn't I didn't think about. So Try to switch baby on both hips there as well. That's what I got out of that. <laughs> All right. I'm comfy moving on from there. Me too. What you got to do is you're right. You don't change your goal. You don't. You say, I am still running the same division I signed up for, or I normally would, and I am just going to make it work. Yeah, I agree. I got one. Can you discuss, this is from uh, CFC SC Lift. Uh, can you discuss <laughs> running and plantar fasciitis? specifically rehabbing and returning to running after a major PF flare. I'm sidelined from running for three months. Oh, you know what? We already read this one. This is in our last Q&A. Didn't delete it. Removed. You're up. Okay. Fun story. It better be fun if you're leading with that. You don't tell me how to enjoy my stories, Zach Schmid. Fun story. <laughs> I'm in the U.S. Army. All right, I'll let it slide. <laughs> and I'm deployed in the hottest country on earth, Djibouti. So the episode on training in the heat was very timely. I listened to it the day before I began the selection process for the French Foreign Legion Desert Commando course. 
which included a five mile run while the heat index was 114 degrees, along with other events. I actually finished first on the run by over two minutes. Thanks for all the great advice you guys give. So thank you. All right. That's not a question. That's just an awesome, awesome testimonial to if you put your mind to it and you get out in the heat, it gets done. Let me reach through the computer screen and pat you on the back, Bracken. Way to go. Way to go, Zach Schmidt. French Foreign Legion. That's what Jean-Claude Van Damme was in in the movie Kickboxer. I'm not, right. sure, if we're, I'm not sure if we're worthy of his listening ears. This no, guy, or uh, was it Bloodsport? Oh. I can tell you. Well, anyways, Van Damme's played French Foreign Legion in multiple movies, and that's all I need to know about you, Zach Schmidt. <laughs> I got a good one here from E. Thorson, 18, okay? Eric Thorson. The whole Thorson family are animals. They really are. And we use somebody's specific name here, and I don't even care. He uses the name in the question. I'm leaving it in. Been a while, but I have a question. How do you catch someone in a race without completely blowing up? I'm tired of having James Nair in my sights 50 to 100 meters ahead and then finishing 50 to 100 meters behind, not being able to catch him. So, James Nair, you got a target on your back, son. What do you think of that question? Well, (laughs) this is a tough one. And my personal opinion, this is not science, this is opinion, is if you are maintaining the entire time, you're doing everything the same except the beginning. Good point. So you're at the same level of fitness in theory because he's not pulling away and you're not dropping. You just have to go out harder. And that's where that fast start workout comes in that we talked about in the last episode and we posted about on Instagram. You incorporate a few more fast starts into your training and you commit to extending your start a little longer and then you bite down and you stay on James Nair. That is great advice. You you go out with James actually and instead just, I am uh, a glue. I'm glued to him. And if it costs me and I blow up, then at least I tried. But if you haven't been able to bridge that gap, go out harder. I agree. Extend that out. But I would say like he's, you know, you're glued onto him and that's the plan. James, yeah. you might be want to check in over your shoulder next race, brother. And that's not always the right advice, but these races that we're talking about are 30 minutes and longer in duration. If you're always hanging the same distance for 20, 25, 30, 40 minutes, it means your fitness matches up to his fitness. He just got a head start. It's a good point. Line up right behind him. Breathe right on his ear. Like Lance Stevenson did to LeBron James. (laughs) Look up that video. Let him know you're coming for him too. Well, now he knows, but let him know. Question for the next Q&A. I like when people announce it as that. They've been doing that more lately. Sometimes they'd say, hey, I have a question for you. And at the end we say, is it okay if we just save this for Q&A because people need to hear it? Now people just preface it. I signed up for my first ultra. In quotes here, a short six hour as many laps as possible. Did one last year. Loved that format. For context, it's a 2.25-mile loop along a cart path of an old golf course being converted into green space. I don't love that. (laughs) That That sounds a little monotonous. (laughs) Should I concern myself with changing socks and shoes during the race? If so, is there a strategy for doing it? Sorry if this was covered already in the Ultra episode. No, it was not. I should go back and re-listen. Yes, you should. But we didn't cover that. Okay, so in a six-hour as many laps as possible race, should I concern myself with changing? Yes. 
Concern yourself. Highly concern yourself. I, in this six hour, had a cooler and we had a little area, staging area, where I concerned myself with every possible scenario that could ever go wrong because I didn't have to carry it with me. When you get to do loops for hours, I'd put every single shoe I ever owned to run in there. And I had I had like four pairs of socks all rolled so that I could just slide my foot right into it and pull the sock up. I had Vaseline there. I had body glide. I had multiple. I had everything. I had change of clothes, change of underwear, because if anything went wrong, why not? Make a quick pit stop. What's it going to cost you? Nothing. That's it. When you have the opportunity to have a, a station that you can revisit, you put every object known to man there. Because who knows, if you need it, you take it. And every fuel option, too, if, if things aren't, you, you don't necessarily know how your body's going to react. So more is actually more in this case, in the yeah. looped format. And if you're talking summer, um, there is no question that your socks and shoes are going to be sloshing around in your sweat very quickly. So that alone is going to cause rubbing and blistering potentially, or just uncomfortability. And you might develop hot spots much easier on your feet. So at minimum multiple shoes and socks, but I even like in that sweaty environment, like the nether regions are going to probably chafe. They, like just a different style of short, having a compression, but also having a loose fitting short, having like all of those things make a big difference because once those enough of those little things start adding up, that's when you start slowing down and feeling sorry for yourself. But if you can stay away from like those pain uh, moments, and those are the things that I say could ideally go wrong and the under armpit chafing sometimes too. Oh, Find ways around those three things and you're going to be much better off. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually something we can talk about for a few minutes. In a hot multi-loop ultra like this, I would have multiple coolers set up. I'd have a clothing cooler where I just had shorts and shirts and I'd come through and I'd rip a shirt off and toss a cold, wet shirt on all day long. It's going to help with chafing. It's going to help with body temperature. The reason things go wrong in ultras yeah, part of it's that you're doing something the human body isn't naturally accustomed to doing, going super long, super intense, and trying to fuel during. But really, it's because you have to play a desert island type game. Like, if I could only have one thing for the rest of this run, what would I choose? And you just have to pray that that thing works for your body that day. That's mm -hmm. why people chafe like crazy or get gut bombs or puke or whatever. It's because you don't have that many options. You make the best choice you can and you stick with it. But when you have an aid station that you control and you see, fill it with everything. That six hour loop race that I did, 1.1 miles, I ended up not ever changing socks and shoes, but I went four straight laps where I told Ross, if this doesn't change this lap, I'm changing because I was starting to get a feeling on the bottom of my foot. And eventually it just went away and I was fine, but I was prepared. I told the people next lap, I'm taking socks and shoes. And then I just didn't take it because I didn't need it by then. But I was prepared to change everything. And this was a cold race. When you start sweating, you get those sodium, that salt deposits on you, you start chafing. I would have an open jug of Vaseline that you can just run through, grab a glop of stuff and start rubbing it on you while you're running. Like I would have everything laid out. Mm -hmm. And it is a nice, soft pillow to sleep on, nice, soft, comfortable pillow to sleep on when you know that you have everything there you could ever need. When your mind is eased and you don't have to worry about the what ifs because you're prepared for the what ifs, yeah. you're going to run and race better as well. Just on that alone, running relaxed. And you can only run relaxed if you know that you got all of your bases covered. So it's important for that reason too, I think. For sure. And this is actually going to be beneficial to you in training as well. 
because now you get to practice this. Once a week, you do one of your easy runs or recovery run is perfect for this. You just set up a changing station in your garage or wherever or at a park. You just run loops. Come back to your car, quick swap a shoe. Come back, quick quick sock change, quick short change. You get efficient at it, but it just kind of gets you through some runs where today I get to go out and test a skill and work on it and work on it. And suddenly you've gone through 70 minutes of work and you didn't even realize it because you're thinking about the next change. So it gets you through training. But it also sets you up to if you have to change socks, you've done it 50 times in training and you know exactly the technique you need to get through. Mm -hmm. You also need to get in touch with the U.S. Olympic Trials Committee, find out how to get those sweet ice vests that they were handing out there. I've never seen those before, but those are real fancy. They were. And you know what I thought? What? You take your Salomon vest and you just freeze some stuff and you just tuck it in the back and you tuck it in the front pocket and that's a poor man's vest right there. Not a bad idea. Then you you got your your cooler with your ice water in it and you throw some sleeves on. Whew, got yourself a stew there, Kirk. Money. All right, next. This is uh, from an athlete of mine and he doesn't, I don't believe he knows I'm going to ask this, but I think it's just worth giving a, a quick answer to. This is from Zane Freeze. He says, uh, good morning, sir. What should I be targeting for a stride length? It looks like my vertical oscillation isn't terrible, but from the looks of my vertical ratio, I'm not running very efficiently. So he's asking about stride length because all of these, um, all this technology now, like you get this huge print off of every run of your vertical oscillation, your stride length, all of these factors that give all these little colorful data points and all of these things. And sometimes information overload is, is like, you know, a a thing we have to deal with. And a lot of people get caught up in it. So I have a screenshot with like an information overload accompanying this this text. And I think others are probably thinking the same, but he's touching on vertical oscillation and then what uh, you should target for a stride length. Do you have any initial thoughts on either? Uh, I think that without proper training and knowing what to look for in athletes in terms of numbers, it's almost impossible to look at the number and self-diagnose. I should be this, this, or this. I like video feedback. I think you have to watch yourself run and not like, like you said last time, not just a camera set on the ground and you run past it. Someone on a bike running with you or driving or on a treadmill and watch minutes of you running. And then you can start to see things. Yeah. You know, in theory, in case anybody's wondering and Zane, I think we, I actually answered this for you at the time, but Um, You know, typically we should be an easy day or a hard quality day. Um, Our, like our stride shouldn't, um, our cadence shouldn't change much. It's just the length of our stride opens up the faster we run. We cover more distance with each stride, but we're not necessarily taking more strides. So to just shortcut that, your stride length should be almost directly correlated to the speed in which you are running. So there's not a right answer to that question necessarily. It's it's more of a catch-22 because um, there's no way to really answer that. Um, it, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but it there's no, there's no formula is what I'm getting at. Stride length and vertical oscillation is kind of just a function of force output and ground contact point. Like the harder you're running... If you're still landing under your center of mass, you're going to push longer. 
And the, sh the slower you're running, the shorter your stride is going to be. So striving for length oftentimes compromises cadence or force output. It's really if you're running mm -hmm. fast and your cadence is up around where it should be and you're hitting underneath yourself, your distance takes care of itself. Your, your stride length is your stride length. That's my that's my way of viewing it. It's a it's a it's a data point that is almost meaningless to me. If I'm hitting under myself, if I'm striking the ground correctly and I'm running the pace and cadence I'd like to be running, then the other part has no choice but to fall in line. Mm -hmm. And we've touched on vertical oscillation before, but that's basically like how much are you moving up and down like your body throughout your run stride? And if you want to see a really classic example of this, you know, we target less vertical oscillation because typically moving up and down is not propelling you forward. So if you have a big boundy stride and you look like you're leaping through the air, it's typically inefficient. So we want to minimize our vertical oscillation. But I've never seen such a discrepancy when we looked at the trials 5K and you had Chalimo mm. and you had Grant Fisher next to him. Grant, <laughs> yes. Fisher could have, Grant Fisher could have balanced a cup of water on his head and it would have stayed there for 5,000 meters. Paul Chalimos would have fallen off stride one because he was so up and down and boundy and big. And if you're curious what like a variation in vertical oscillation is, go back and watch the 5,000 U.S. Olympic trial finals. Watch Paul Chalimo bounding with a back kick up to his butt and then watch Grant Fisher with this perfectly even stride and his head doesn't move up or down a centimeter very, there was just very different running styles, and that would outline vertical oscillation—the difference between the two. Yeah, and and that's you couldn't force either of those two to really change their oscillation without changing their stride. Oscillation is the other thing; like going up and down is a byproduct of how you run. Mm -hmm. So, generally, the more you bound up in the air, the slower your cadence is. So, if you struggle with slow cadence chances are you're either really slow ground contact time and just you have a sluggish stride or you're spending a lot of time in the air. So again, right. fixing your ground contact time, ground contact placement and cadence takes care of those other two things by themselves. Mm -hmm. Something of note in that race, I know we've been, you know, up on the Olympic trials and we're going to move off it shortly, I'm sure. But Paul Chalimo looked back twice during the race and scolded other competitors, like actually yelled at them. He looked like a bit of a diva. It didn't look good for him. In fact, it did make me like him less. I can't help it. It just did. I don't know about you. Um, he could be the greatest guy in the world, but he was yelling out at people on the, on the course. And then I looked at his stride and the, his back swing on his stride bracken and, and his, his feet would come up to my belly button without a yeah. joke on the back of his stride. No wonder people were running up on him. He needs a five yard buffer behind his stride. Like people Seriously. aren't used to getting kicked in the face while they're running. And so I think Paul Chalimo should get scolded because it's his biomechanics that are at fault. What do you think about that? It, there's, there's truth to that, that a lot of times people with really graceful flowing long boundy strides cause issues for people running behind them because people aren't used to having that amount of clearance behind somebody. It's really hard to run on the shoulder of someone who's kicking you in the gut. Yeah. And that's not an exaggeration. I bet you his back kick was coming up to at least the hips of the competitors behind him. Maybe for, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the way his stride looks on every stride of a 5,000, 10,000 is the way I hope mine would look if I was running an all out 400. <laughs> I know it's amazing. Um, I got another one ready. If you're ready. Yeah. Okay, this is from uh, Josh Puket. 
and this is worth addressing. This came up after our um, training in the heat episode. A listener submitted question. He says, when is it too hot to run outside? My response was never. And then he sent me a screenshot where it said 116 degrees was what the temperature was. And he had to decide what to do. So that was the the preface to that question. And I was like, ah, that might be a valid question. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, you can always do it, but you start having to, it's kind of like extreme cold. What did we say? We've run in negative 50, but it starts becoming a challenge in and of itself to prepare for it. To some people, that's more hassle than it's worth. Like to, to have to do looped runs where you keep coming back and adding ice to your hat or dousing yourself or, you know, wearing, like we talked about cold, wet clothes waiting for you to keep throwing stuff on. It can be done. I mean, people run across death, death Valley for ultras. Like it's, it's doable, but at some point you have to decide, is it worth the hassle? So I have, I have no issues with people turning to treadmills. I don't think it's a toughness metric. I don't think that it's any more effective to go out and, and force yourself through it. But I don't think that we should be fearful of it as long as you take the proper steps to ensure that you're medically safe to do so. Like you don't just go out for a two hour run in 118 degrees and not have a a plan for how to stay cool. Yeah. I would say if recovery is priority number one, let's say you're behind the eight ball on recovery and you know, like I need to recover today. Mm-hmm. Um, you might just be making a safer and more cerebral call by staying inside and ensuring that um, your heart rate isn't going to drift or spike on you and you're actually going to get that recovery. And I would say that might be one exception. I know I'm not giving you a temperature number there, but but that one I would just say, you know what, if I'm really asking myself that question, is it too hot to safely run outside and you also really need to recover that day, get a big session the day before or something, that would be a good, an easy dis- deciding factor for me. Um, the other thing is, is you don't know until you try and it's a scary thing to say, but you know, I've done this before in extreme heat and I've run hard before in extreme heat. And you know, your real signs are this, like if you start one, getting the chills in the middle of your run, you start to feel cold. That that's a sign that you're already on your way to heat stroke and you need to stop. And then two is when you're finished with your run and you start getting the chills or the shivers and headaches, especially you know you've overdone it. And if that's the case, if you start feeling that way after your runs or during, with the chills during, it could be 110 out and you're sweating profusely and you start to get a shiver come through your body, that's a sign that you've breached your temperature limit. And then afterwards, if you're dealing with that and it shuts you down for a few hours and again, you're like, am I getting sick? Why do I have the chills? Um, that's like heat exhaustion or you know, 101 as far as like signs and symptoms. So you might have to experiment a little bit with that. So you might be able to think back to a time and be like, oh, I did remember, I did remember experiencing that. And then that, you can kind of get gauged that way. So like, listen to your body on that too. If you go out and run in it and you get done and yeah, I'm dehydrated and I'm thirsty, but like those signs like headaches or the chills especially aren't happening, your body probably can handle that temperature. So that's like a really good indicator, uh, the chills in particular. Yeah, I agree. And and you you brushed upon that, but maybe the best indicator is since we're training and not exercising, most of us that listen to this podcast, what's the purpose of your day? Can you accomplish that purpose outside? And if you can go do it. And if you can't, you can't. We talk about this winter. I ran two winters ago. It was negative 52. I think that was my PR. 
and I could run an easy run that day. But all winter, even when it was only like five degrees out, I did my true speed faster than 5K stuff indoor on the treadmill. Because I couldn't accomplish that outside without running the risk of of injury. I did my my threshold work outside. I did my 5K work outside. But if I was doing true speed, even in 10 degrees, I was on the treadmill because I could just accomplish it better. Yeah. Yeah, that's good perspective there too. Hey, boys. Was wondering if on the next Q&A you could address this. Kirk mentioned in the Las Vegas episode the importance of putting in a sand block, in quotes, for Abu Dhabi World Championships this year. But there will be snow on the ground at that time. I live in Canada. I'm in the same position as you. How would we address this? Thanks. Good question. It is. If you can't run in sand or shallow water, snow is the next best thing. It's not a one-to-one translation, but it's the next best thing. And sand exaggerates the strain on your body. So your hamstrings have to pull harder and... That the whole rear chain has to fire more intensely to gain true ground. And so you work in the gym on doing that, hip flexors, hamstrings, and then you run in the snow. You do speed work in the snow. And the, the more powdery or slushy snow you can find, the better. Yeah, in an ideal world, you'd have like, oh, three inches of fresh powder mm-hmm. where you can actually get into and you'll have some slip on the push off. But the next best thing, in my opinion, is... Um, any of that stuff that gets packed down, let's say a snowblower goes over a sidewalk or somebody like the road where all the cars drive and then it gets like matted down and it's kind of slippery. So that push off sucks. Finding that snow that's been used, but you don't get a return on your investment with a push off because that's what happens with sand. I remember doing a road race once um, in March and it had snowed that night before just a little bit. This is pre OCR days and all I had was road flats. And I showed up and I ran and I was running in place, essentially. I ran like an 1835K and the one prior was like 1610. That's how bad it was. And I ran as hard as I could. And when I got done, my hamstrings and my calves were sore as I can ever remember for the entire week. In fact, it took me out of running for a few days because that slip and that push off engaged a hamstring curl so hard every time. And... And that really opened my eyes to like, okay, one, what does snow running do? And two, what does sand running do? But the idea is, is that when you push off, you're not getting a full push back. You're slipping. So anytime you can find, I mean, I'm not saying go run on ice. That's stupid, which is what I basically did that morning. But when you push off and there's give, you just need to replicate that feeling, right? Whether it's in a foot of snow or if it's on something that's plowed. But when you push and you're not getting full grip, that's what you need to find. So find that any way you can. You've talked about this and I've experienced this. One of the least satisfying runs in winter would be snowmobile tracks. Oh, because it's packed down, but you step on it and you break through the crust and you just anywhere from a quarter inch to three inches, your feet break through as soon as you go to push. And if you want that, that jerk and that hamstring, like just that contraction there, if you're in Canada, you can find some snowmobile tracks. That's a great point. Snowmobile trails is what I use in the winter, and they're exactly that most of the time. Also, if you can just get out of the city onto like those gravel roads or side roads where they're plowed once and then forgotten about, they usually have that same type of terrain on them, and, and they're not well-maintained, and that's what you want to find, yeah. 
Um, running on a frozen lake works also, but that's one of those things you need to know your lake. You need to know where there's moving water, where there's going to be some some ice that's not stable. So I've run on a lot of Wisconsin lakes that you have that little bit of slick that like every time you go to tow off, you just slip a little bit and it's fantastic. But at the same time, you need to know your body of water. Yeah. And it's fantastic. I mean, I, I will sing the praises of the VJ Zero, which has the cleated spikes in the bottom. That is one of my favorite shoes I've ever worn in all my years on this planet. But... If you are training for Abu Dhabi, that would be the time you go run without that shoe on. Run with your regular shoe on in that crappy terrain. Don't be giving yourself assistance. Know your times are going to suck, and that's how it's going to go. So I would actually avoid using mechanical advantage in those workouts as well. Yeah, and it does, this what we're talking about, this doesn't have to be done every single day. No. You hit need to hit targeted workouts at least once or twice a week in which you do that if you're going after Abu Dhabi to do your best. I got next one if we're ready to move on. Roll Tide. Uh, Vic.a.a. .a. Um, a potential question for the next Q&A. Acute versus chronic pain. At what point does pain just become something an athlete deals with, i.e. chronic? Uh, for example, I've had pain in my lower glute for, I'm not kidding, almost two years. It's never gotten worse, and the discomfort ebbs and flows. I can run on it no problem at all, and it hasn't resulted in any other problems, either like an imbalance or a bad gait, etc. It's just something I have I have that I've gotten used to. Is this bad practice? Am I setting myself up for misery in my older years? Thanks for considering, and if this has been addressed before, I will look into the archives. This has not been addressed before, so this is a great question. And man, if we're not in a sport of chronic issues that we are feeling on a regular basis, I don't know if there's another sport out there with a chronic overuse syndrome uh, any worse than running. So very valid question. Tough one to answer. What do you think? You want to kick it off? Sure. Yeah, I can kick it off. Um, here's, the, here's the thing. If, if you believe that this is affecting you ever mechanically, meaning you are forced to slow down because of the issue, uh, and it's notable at times, and it sounds like it's not, but if it ever is affecting your biomechanics and then thus your speed or your efficiency, it's time to take a really hard look at that and maybe take a reset and let that soft tissue heal, like take a true deload. Um, however, if it's something like shin splints, which I deal with, I have them right now, it doesn't affect anything other than the fact that it hurts. It doesn't biomechanically affect me. Um, I would say it's okay to ride the line. So, in that sense, that's like the first deciding factor. Is it ever holding you back? And if the answer is yes, then maybe you should actually look harder into this. If you really don't feel like it is, then I don't know if you need to change anything. So I would start by asking yourself that question first. Does this ever hold me back? That's, I think that's the perfect place to start. Like if you change your stride because of your pain, it's going to make you worse long-term. And I think that's the next point you go is, can this long-term impact me negatively? Like right now, yeah, it's manageable, but does this lead to something down the road? Since most of us do this for enjoyment at some level, we're going to want to enjoy it again in five years and in 10 years and in 15. So it's that pay now, pay later. If you're going to pay later, pay now, take some time off rather than taking 10 years off your shelf life. Yeah. Or just know, okay, the season is important to me. It's not affecting me that much. Let's get through OCRWC or Spartan Worlds or whatever your last is and then say, hey, I'm going to suck it up for a month and I'm going to cross train or take time off and 
I, I need to see if I can fix this thing. Go in and do your doctoring then if you don't have a lot of time. But I would say mentally plan ahead for that. And that way it won't be such a hit. You know, it's coming. It's not going to set you back long-term with your fitness if you stay on your cross training. Um, and that would be an okay option too, I think, is like, know that you are going to address this. If mid-season isn't right for you, that's okay. But um, I, I don't know. Pain always typically when not addressed leads to more pain. And if it's not in the same place the pain is, it's going to somehow migrate to somewhere else because of some sort of gate change. And and then you begin like that domino effect and that can be tough. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And yep. we're stubborn creatures. We want to work out because it's what we enjoy to do. And and sometimes we have to stay out of our own way. And other times it's just, yeah, I got to go through discomfort for a bit. But no one wants to deal with a long-term pain. It's usually something you can fix, usually. So I'm always an advocate of pain now. All right, gentlemen, new fan to the show here. Question, what's a running range you'd recommend for a nine going on 10-year-old boy to start building foundation? Uh, I'm new to running myself. I have seen some conflicting info on youth runners distance pace frequency for someone of that age eight to nine did he say nine years old going to be 10 train what is the goal here that's the first question nope, I have. no context no context um we did cover this uh one in the mark botris episode we talked about how he trains his son who has been doing some amazing things i saw a video of i think his name's nico uh, when I'm running and uh, kids got some wheels. But anyways, I would go back and listen to the Mark Botches episode if you're curious about that. We did touch on it a little bit. And then we also did touch on it in an, another Q&A, but we can brush it over real quick. And that is um, a 10-year-old can't train like an endurance athlete or not even close. It's, um, it's more turning it into play, uh, mm -hmm. a movement that involves running. And if you are going to make it structured or maybe the kid wants, maybe he's you know, idolizes track and he wants to go do this stuff, keeping it short, actually short intervals with rest. Um, we're not looking to send him out on even a half an hour run quite yet, probably maybe, but I mean, you're looking at anything under that and short and play. That's where I'd start. Yes. Yeah. Play, 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 play. It has to be fun. And I hope that your son is driving the interest. If they are asking, I want to run more, I want to compete. I want to be fast. That's fantastic. And you nurture that with play. Like you said, the running must be fast. Kids are born with fantastic natural strides and we slowly lose that over time. But the quickest way to lose it is kids don't know how to jog. They don't. They have really, they're like watching sprinters jog. They have that boundy, like I'm trying to run slow using my sprint form, but their sprint form is so beautiful. We don't want to mess with that. And Slow running is the least fun and we want this to be play. So have some structured fast stuff throughout the week. All aerobic base building, in my humble opinion, should be done on an apparatus when you are young. I would say for sure pre-middle school. You could even argue up to puberty, but that's a little late for a lot of people. But roller skates, roller blades, um, Wheeled skis, biking, elliptical, I don't care what it is. A non-impact cardio form, in my opinion, is the greatest way to build up the cardiovascular engine in a young child and then let them only run where they're going to use their beautiful, free-flowing kid stride that everyone's born with. Yeah. 
if I had to paint the perfect picture, let's say regardless of what the kid wants, okay? But by gosh, this kid's going to be a runner someday. I would enter that child into soccer. Uh, and eventually, if they're any good into higher level sort of like club type teams in their, you know, when they're 10, 11, 12, um, which is going to involve a lot of running, yet play is the center of it. They're going to work on fast, most efficient movements. They're going to be on feet a lot, covering miles per game at times. I don't know if there's a better sport at that age to translate to future running success than soccer, um, unless you're a goalie, of course. So I think that's like a really good starting point if the kid is enjoying that stuff. And then supplement it maybe with a little other things outside of there until they're, I think that 12, 13 range, you can start maybe adding in some true training, but that would be how I would, I would have my kid play soccer, you know, two, three times a week. And then when it hit about middle school, sixth grade ish, then we can start talking about running, running. That's how I look at it. Yeah. I think that if I were going to say, take one of my kids and try to turn them into the highest level runner they could be. And I took their enjoyment out of it. Just, we're going to build a lab specimen here. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Speed drills sprinting, like uh, interval works, just diagonals across the soccer field. And then I would have them roller skiing, Nordic skiing, mountain biking. That's what I'd be doing. I wouldn't have them hunched over on a road bike and I wouldn't have them in on an indoor spin. I think I'd be doing the 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 Nordic non-impact and then sprint training. Yeah, I like that. But yes, no structure. If you want to go, if, he, if the kid is, if your child's craving it, you can go to the track and be like, all right, walk down to the end of the lane and sprint to me and walk back. I'll time you. Kids love being timed, right? Mm-hmm. Like simple things like that. Yes, that's a workout, but not making it like, let's go run for an hour today and, you know, keep up sort of thing that, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't entail. So yes, it can look like training, but yeah. timing a kid on a hundred meter straight is still like fun for them in general, if they want to do it. So that yeah. stuff still works. Running skill and running engine are the two biggest components and you can build the running engine without running and the running skill they're born with. So you just want to nurture that. But yeah, enjoyment is the biggest reason people don't run. So you encourage enjoyment overall. Yeah. You want me to go? You got another one. Uh, I have more, but you can go. Um, Okay. I'll go. Uh, Jano underscore Nell says, Hey, quick question. How would the, Oh, this is going to be for you. (laughs) Quick question. How would the Ultra Vanish XC racer hold up as an OCR and cross-country racer, in your opinion? I've been looking at it specifically for water drainage, as this has plagued me with my other trail shoes and OCR races, which I agree with. A lot of OCR shoes are not good at draining water, even though we're in it all the time. A lot of trail shoes are not good at draining water. Um, So they're asking specifically maybe what your advice would be on a good draining shoe. And then two Mm -hmm. about the ultra vanish cross country racer. Um, Yeah. By ultra. That is a very light, very breathable shoe. I personally wouldn't use it because I don't think it has the foot lockdown that I'm looking for. However, I know people do. I think Jordan Buscemi uses that for OCR these days. I've seen that. I think I saw that on his feet and he likes it. Um, the lugs are not hyper aggressive. They're small and more pointy like you'd find on a cross country shoe. So I think for like a Jacksonville or something, you probably wouldn't have any issue with it for a mud bath. 
it might be rough. And for very rocky technical terrain, I don't know if it has that torsional rigidity to be able to withstand lateral movement in the shoe. But if you're an ultra person and the King MT is too bulky and and heavy for you, it's just too too that the rubbery bottom is so thick. Mm-hmm. If that's not going to work, then this the Vanish. Um, they have the Vanish R and the Vanish XC. Those are the next best racer options out there. Okay. Um, what about just since we're on the topic and we haven't actually chatted about shoes with water drainage, uh, no. specifically as much shoe chat as, as you've done through the episodes, do you have any, uh, opinions on good shoes for, for drainage? Yeah. So, I mean, the VJ IROX, in my opinion, drain very well. They're actually the only VJ shoe that drains very well. The, the extreme and the max do not drain well. Mm-hmm. Of all the other great things they do, drainage is not one of them. The Innovate, Innovate itself drains very well. The Innovate upper just lets water fly out of it. It's just airy and yeah, it flies out of it. Yeah. The X-Talon uh, 210, in my opinion, is like the that golden shoe for speed, grip, drainage. It's fantastic. And they just put out a new one maybe 220, maybe it's update to the 210, but they added uh, more resilience to the upper because the last one breathed like crazy and ripped like crazy. So the new one out of that is has uh, graphene in it and it's fantastic. Uh, for swim run, Innovate's very popular. And then there are several other brands, uh, the Amphib, so, uh, Solomon XA, or S-Lab XA Amphib 2. <laughs> they have ridiculous names, but you got to get the S-Lab version of the Amphib. They have a regular Amphib and they have the S-Lab Amphib. You got to go S-Lab. And the two is, in my opinion, markedly better than the one. So if I had my like hierarchy of I'm going to run a wet, muddy course, it would be the Solomon Amphib 2 the S-Lab version, something from Innovate X-Talon, and then the VJ IROC. Those would be my top three for drainage and grip and light speed. What shoe I was impressed with, uh, I've only really run in sloppy conditions, and it was the Hoka Evo Evo Jaws as well. It just has such a light upper on it that the water, just like the Innovate X-Talon line, it just flings out of that thing because it's it's made so light. Sure, it doesn't last very long. You're going to rip that shoe up in a few races, but... It drains very well. And you see guys, if you really want to shortcut this, you got a heavy pair of shoes. You look at two things. You look at how much water does the upper and the tongue hold. And then you look at, does it drain out of the sides and bottoms at all? And if the answer is it doesn't drain out of the sides and bottoms, like I'm sure a number of you will raise your hands. If I ask the question, like how many of you drilled holes in the bottoms of your, your racing shoes, if that's an issue. So I would say pick the shoe that you just like the most in general, Yeah, find a way to make it work. Right. Yeah, you see, guys, there's tutorials which I would recommend watching on YouTube where people just take a drill bit and they drill into the shoe and create drainage holes. But there are specific recommendations for diameter of drill bit you want to use so that's big enough to drain, but not big enough to just be a, an entry point and the angle you use so that water will be forced out, but not everything rushes up in. Because you don't want all the sand and grit just like Coming making in. itself at home. Yeah, and, and a lot of times people like a mistake people will make is they'll, they'll drill a hole in the insert as well. And sometimes you want, you want to leave that insert alone in most of the cases and just drill holes in the actual shoe itself. If you can prevents things from coming up into your shoe yet still drains out the bottom of that insert. So it's a tricky game, but if, if you get dialed mm-hmm. in, it could work. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up that insert, the insole, 
of the actual shoe that's in the footbed that's usually removable, there are two types of them. There's open cell and closed cell foam. Open cell foam is going to just work like a chamois. It's just going to absorb all the water like a brownie paper towel, which is really nice if you're trying to clean up spills, but not good if you want to get the water out of your shoe because it just gets really heavy. But closed foam, closed cell foam will just get wet, but it doesn't soak everything up. So finding that is really key. And Hoka did this on one of their shoes. I don't remember which one it is. I don't remember if it's the Mafate or if it were it was the Speedgo, but one of them they used open cell foam and I actually switched footbeds because I was getting an extra ounce or two of water just on the insert itself. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't know what that was, but yeah, you just got to be cognizant of that. And how do you figure out which one you have? You take it out and you run it or dip it in water or run it underneath. And if it comes up just saturated, you know, this is not the insert I want for a wet race. And there are some shoes that you can take the insert out and there's not all this nasty sewing and and excess material all over the bottom. There are some shoes I can race in, especially on a soft trail with no insert. Yep. Yeah. Always an option as well. We got more out of that than I thought we would, Kirk. Sure did. (laughs) What are the odds that I got rambling about shoes? Who (laughs) would have thought? Never. We have another child-based question here. All right. I have a training conundrum, chaps. What are the chances this person's not from the U.S.? Pretty high. I've got a one-year-old child, so finding time to train is difficult. I essentially have one hour. No more, no less. I bet you could find less than an hour. (laughs) And I'm training to hopefully podium in age group. One of my biggest weaknesses are hills. I have a treadmill at home and I can run to a decent sized hill within 20 minutes that's on a trail. Should I A, jump on the treadmill at home, spend 40 to 50 minutes hammering incline on the treadmill. B, run to the hill, spend 20 minutes running on the hill, then run home or C, some other solution. I guess it's duration versus terrain specificity, which should win. I would do both. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And I also would say that, yeah, I'm a firm believer that intensity trumps duration, meaning like if you had to pick one or the other, um, I would only do interval and tempo and threshold work and skip long runs altogether because it's just more bang for your buck than if you were to just run slow and long all the time. So it's not the worst position to be in. Is it ideal? No, but you can get a lot of good work done. And don't beat yourself up if you don't have time for your long runs because you can make up with that for quality, in, in, in my opinion. so But both, yes, yeah. both. Both for sure. I do one easy and one hard of both versions every week at minimum. Like easy on the treadmill but hard out on the real hill one week, and then the next week easy on the real hill, hard on the treadmill. Or even both. I'd have a Tuesday, Saturday. Tuesday, I'm on the trail, ripping up some up and downs. And then Saturday, I'm working thresholds, climbing on the treadmill. And then throughout the week, some easy stuff on both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you need, to get to that, you need to get to the real hill. If you're wondering if it's worth your time to run out to that real hill and do it, uh, absolutely. You need to get on real train. You need to get descending for sure. So Yeah. Or drive there. Or if it's, if it's not drivable, bike there. Get there as quick as you can some days. Yeah. Um, next question, NBYNBURN12 we'll go with. Okay, I have a question, exclamation point. When you talk about quality days and doing two, maybe three in a week, what are you considering your quality days? Tempo runs, speed work, hills? Just confused as to where to put the most focus 
how much volume I can add in before it gets to be too much. I have a wild tendency to overtrain without realizing it. Smiley face. I just blanked out. I was reading the next question. Bracken, that's disrespectful to N Burn 12. And disrespectful to you, Kirk D. Wint. No, don't worry about me. I'll be all right. Okay, well, I'll just start then. Just wondering, what do we consider quality days if we talk about two or three quality days per week? Well, so I fall into the camp where I consider a long run a quality day because of yeah. because time on feet is damaging to me. So she did not, she or he did not include that in um, their list. But I consider long runs somewhat, if not at least a semi-quality day that I have to make note of. Even if I keep my heart rate low, if I'm on feed for three hours, I'm going to experience damage from that. So, um, but then just like our last question, the answer is yes. Hill work is a qual- is quality speed work, tempo run. Anything where you are purposely getting above your recovery heart rate zones and working is a quality day. So um, I say yes to all of those. All of those are quality days. And I also most often consider Long runs, especially long runs when you have vert, because no matter how easy you climb, heart rate tends to spike and drop throughout that run, and you get more damage accumulated that way when you're chasing vert and, and descending and, and ascending. So that's my answer to that. Yeah, I like it. I only have one criteria for if it's quality day or not. Do I need to recover from it? Okay. If it requires recovery afterwards, more than just I wake up the next day and do it again, like one night is not recovery. Mm-hmm. If I have to take a full day after that before I can do something similar, it's a quality effort. And so for me, even an easy long run where I don't climb, if I can't do it again the next day with no lingering issues, it's a quality day. Mm-hmm. And that's my difference between quality and skill work. Skill work can be intense, but it might be three reps of like 200 meters fast working on stride. I could do that every single day of my life probably. I don't need recovery, but it's skill-based. So recovery for me dictates it's a quality. I just think there's a lot of people out there that aren't very in touch with their bodies and in tune, and they're more uh, not able to feel it out maybe as well as somebody tenured. And so for those people, it's it's more a fact of, I would just like to go back to like, did I try hard or did I not today? And if I tried I hard- you then maybe I shouldn't try hard again tomorrow and the next day, <laughs> you know, you're yeah. a master of your body. You know it, you know that. you know. Yeah. But even if you, let's say you go for a two hour long run and you kept it recovery long run, as you call it. And the next day you wake up and you feel pretty good, like out of bed and walking around and Hey, I kind of want to run today, but your inner self who has experience knows, Hey, I don't think the run's going to go. I sure. I feel okay in life. Whereas gotcha. somebody who's inexperienced might be like intervals. Now I feel ready to go and that's going to dig themselves into a hole. Okay. This leads into the next question. What's the difference between a quality workout and a hero workout? Now we've talked about that with big swings of the hammer versus swinging the hammer hard. And this is where I get into my breakdown of that definition. Could I do the workout again the next day just as well? I could say yes on certain quality days. Say I ran three by mile on Monday. I could do three by mile and maybe hit the same times on Tuesday. It would feel way worse, but I could do it. Still a quality session, but that's not a hero session. Mm -hmm. But if I could not do it again the next day, not even close, wouldn't even want to consider it, that's a hero session. A workout so big that it's a a once in a rare opportunity workout. To me, that's a hero workout. You wouldn't even consider trying it again. 
I, for me, it would be like, like the next day, no, like a, a hero workout. Like I don't want to touch something like that again for like a, a week. Like I can't, I don't think I'd have the mental exertion in me to go do that it, it, until a week later or something, even two days after be like, there's no way I could go do that and perform like I did. You wouldn't even really want to. No, you wouldn't want to. That's exactly it. You wouldn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. That, so yeah, quality session, you might need recovery, but you could get up and do it again if you needed to. But a true hero workout, man, why I wouldn't even want to do that. And you and you'll learn that over time too, with your recovery piece. Like, I don't know, was that a hero workout? Was it not? And then you go to do your next quality session three days later and you're still smashed. You're like, mm-hmm. God, it wasn't there today. Maybe you did a hero workout three days ago. So yeah. being in tune with it, learning over time too, for sure. Interesting question from Carl, this guy that I coach. Hey, Carl. We had a question a while ago about assault bike making you fatigue resistant as a runner. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And wonder about shunting blood and upper body demand yeah. and all that. Yeah. His follow-up is, is it beneficial in an OCR sense where you transition to arms, carries, obstacles to be able to handle full body fatigue over just running fatigue? Can you see that? Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around that one. So you talk about compromised running for, let's say, trail runners to be able to pound your quads and get off and still run a hill. But for OCR, to be able to move from arm fatigue to leg fatigue and back and forth in a race, his question is, is an assault bike maybe more important for us than even just a typical one plane of movement quality workout that's compromised? Like the ability to handle and do it is it better for OCR than it would even be for another sport for cross training? I mean, yeah, we're only prospecting here shooting from the hip, but yeah. I could see the argument without question. I, I think if you're going to take that school of thought and that theory, then the answer is yes. Um, but I also do think that it could potentially translate to just linear road running as well, just mm-hmm. for overall demand. So I, I don't, I don't know what to say to that, but I would, I would, Cautiously say yes. So there are some accepted running theories. One is that the faster you can sprint in your sustainable form, kind of VJ's mechanical threshold. That was a good conversation, by the way. It really was. I Mm -hmm. like that guy's mind. Mm -hmm. The easier it is to run at a sub-maximal. So I was just rereading some articles this weekend because I, I... I I like to revisit coaches' minds. And one of them I stumbled upon was an Alberto Salazar interview from a while ago. Now, he's been banned, but it doesn't change the fact that he knows running. And he said, take Mo Farah for an example. Without specific speed training, he runs 51.5 in a 400. And now to run his 5K pace, he's running at 83% of that. With specific speed training, he runs 49.1. And now he's running 80% of that at 5K. He Mm -hmm. said to the average person, it doesn't matter as much, but when you're trying to kick at the end of the race, having used 3% less of your maximum capacity could be that difference on a world stage. So that concept of if I can do more than what I'm asked to, doing less fatigues me less than the person next to me. So -hmm. if that works with running with legs, it should also work with arms as well, correct? So if, if a standard runner comes to do a wall or a crawl, 
and they're using a lot of their percentage of their muscular strength, and now they get back to running, and now it's at a depleted state. If you can work hard on an assault bike in a cardiovascular manner and use your arms, if you're using less percent of that and you're used to using more in a race, you should be less fatigued by association. I mean, I can tell you right now that yesterday I did an upper body lift. I have a race tomorrow, so I left my lower bodies alone, but I but I hit it harder. And then in the afternoon, I did a recovery assault bike session. Um, and I hit the arms pretty hard. And then in the recovery assault bike session, my arms were getting tired and I was pulling them off the stupid things because they were like filling up quicker and burning. I was like, I just don't like that. I don't want that. Um, and and all, the only point I'm making there is, will that make me more resistant to some sort of fatigue when I really need the arms in a race or in another circumstance? I don't see how it would not. Yeah. Because I, there was clearly fatigue in my body. And then I kind of layered over that fatigue with some arm work on the assault bike. And there has to be some resistance to fatigue built there. So in that regard, I've, I've felt that for sure. Well, runners are used to swinging their arms, but they don't need to derive power from the arms. And if you are in a, a situation where you have to drive power with your arms, you will recover better if you're used to driving power with your arms. So I guess that's yeah, yeah. our answer is we think so, yes, and we can't find a reason why it wouldn't work. Yeah, and like we said, we've we've uh, stroked this guy enough, but go watch Cole Hawker finish any race and talk about running with your arms, and you'll be like, that dude's running with his arms. Clearly something to it. No. Yeah. Yeah. You got another one? I got a couple. Fire. I am Spartan Podcast. Mm-hmm. I know you have talked about it before, I was playing with my Garmin watch and noticed it has four different settings to base the heart rate zones off of. It should be based off of lactate uh, uh, heart rate, correct? He's for context, it's the Forerunner 735. Um, so basically asking if the zone should be based off of like, he says LTHR, which I believe is lactate heart, heart rate. Yeah. Heart rate. So what, what are your thoughts on that? It should be, yeah. Because what they do is, they understand that most people aren't ever working at max heart rate in a normal run. And so they calculate their zones based off of heart rates that most people will hit at some point. And Correct. so, yeah, they, their, theirs is based off lactate threshold heart rate, and then they scale up and down from there. Um, the one thing I noticed that it doesn't translate to, I don't know how you, how you look at your data, if it's straight on Garmin Connector, if you use Strava, but in Strava, I just went on the back end and all I did, like it asks you to enter your max heart rate manually. Mm-hmm. And so Strava so zones are a lot of times based on what you just plugged in manually. So I think I typed in 191 or something arbitrary uh, in there. And so just make sure like you're looking at the right, because they're going to be calibrated differently, your Strava and your Garmin. So it sounds like you're just focusing on your Garmin, but a lot of times we do comb through the data on Strava. And that, I believe they base that one off of what you label your own self-prescribed max on. So there's a difference between the two. Yeah, I I just I just don't think heart rate's something to dabble with. I think you either do it right or you ignore it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to use it, you might as well get good info. And can, can Garmin give you good info? Yeah, but you got to run the test that they give you. You can't just do your normal runs and let them guesstimate. So if you're going to use your Garmin heart rate, do its self-prescribed lactate threshold heart rate test and yeah. maybe do their max heart rate test as well, but give it some real actionable data rather than guesstimate data. I had a, an interesting thing my watch did yesterday. I ran intervals. I ran 
two by four minutes or right. Sorry. Four by two minutes and four by one minute, a race week prep interval. It's one of my, my go-tos. And um, afterwards my Garmin detected a new lactate threshold. And I was sitting here thinking like, you shouldn't be detecting a lactate threshold in two and one minute intervals with rest. Like that's a flawed system. You can tell me what my lactate threshold is if I go out for a tempo run or longer intervals. Mm-hmm. So it's it actually, unfortunately, like gave me less faith in what my watch is telling me. Cause should a tell me Bracken, should a watch be telling you your lactate threshold off of two minute and one minute intervals? I don't think so. No. Correct. But this gives me an idea for an invention, Kirk. Which is? A smart device that is a blood lactate tester. So usually you have to stop and you have to take the finger prick. Yeah. So what I want is my watch on the back where it has the heart rate monitor. Instead, I want a tiny little needle, almost like you see in spy movies in like a ring or something that they jab out and they put a some sort of toxin into the evil guy. But I want that. So when I'm running, all you do is you set it up when you take, like I hit my split at the end of an interval and it goes, you have your, your split button set to take a quick reading and it just quick jabs you on your wrist and takes your blood lactate in real time. Maybe someday you'd have to figure out the uh, sanitary side of that. Imagine that little needle getting full of salt and sweat and dirt and then jabbing it and then you get freaking. Listen, this is how freeform ideas start. <laughs> okay, right? well, I'm just thinking ahead. Of, that's all. I, I'm in the think tank. It's on the scientist to come up with it, but I want real time. That's a fitness tracker. We, we Rich and I railed against fitness trackers and smart devices. That's one I could get behind or a ring. He talked about the the aura ring, which does heart rate and like that, you could have a ring that could do your quick little jab, or you just even squeeze it yourself. It's got a little, little needle there. You just squeeze it and you get real time blood lactate level measuring. Yeah. The surprise needle might be a little much for some people. It's a random jab. Maybe not random. Maybe you have to hit the button, but that would be cool. Rather than walk over, grab the 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 finger test from your coach, take it, sit there and wait. You just, you hit your split with a needle. Boom. You're at 4.1. You're good. Great job. Great job. Great job. Um, I got another, I don't know how many you have. Um, I'm out. I got a, oh, you are. Okay. I just got, I got more than I think, but uh, I've got about 15 minutes here on my clock. So I got a good one from Jack Bauer. He texts me this personally and, um, and I like this. I like this one. And to give context, and maybe he doesn't his question, but but Jack got his first real injury recently in the la- in this in this last year. He's never had one. Lucky for him, he's never had one or had to deal with one. I also have another client who just found out she has a new injury. She's never dealt with this. Very devastated. So just to preface the question, so Jack Bauer says, "How do you convince yourself you won't get hurt again after you're coming back after coming back from injury?" You see it all the time in the NFL or NBA when an athlete's body is fully healed, but their mind isn't ready to accept that yet. Whenever they take a weird step or feel a slightly painful sensation, they immediately decrease their effort or stop, even though they likely won't get re-injured. The same thing easily applies to OCR. Subconsciously, you associate that familiar pain with injury, and it's easy to convince yourself that you're about to get hurt again, so you go easy instead. Realistically, You know you're not going to get hurt anymore, but it's easy to let the phantom injury excuse creep into your mind. He asks for any uh, tips to get over this mental block. Um, I wasn't happy with his question, so I asked uh, some more follow-up questions. Um, 
And basically he had said that, you know, this is his, this is his perspective. After five plus months of an Achilles issue, he finally had a two month block from April to mid June without a setback. He was feeling fit in his first race last weekend, about 15 minutes into his race. He was tied for third with a gentleman, Matt rock, uh, not too far back from the lead. All things were looking good. He basically tweaked something on the bucket carry, got in his own head, and basically let everybody run away from him. That's the story. So what do you tell somebody in that situation? Well, I'm kind of living that, right? And I just had a very personal experience with that this week. I jumped for the first time since my second knee surgery. Went to a gym and played around bas- played basketball for a little bit and then started jumping. And I was so dainty and ginger with my jumping and my landing. And then after like a half hour, my body started to go back to autopilot and trust a little bit. But it was my first one. And I was so convinced that the first time I planted hard or landed, I was going to tear something. And I felt that on descents. I've been dainty on descending sometimes and unwilling to run without tension because I don't want to be loose and let my joints take it. I've been like squeezing through my core and my hips to try to take the muscular impact rather than let things flow. So yeah, it's difficult, but I think immersing yourself in those experiences over and over and over until finally you go back to autopilot. Yeah. Like finding those things. Okay. Bucket carry scares me. Technical terrain scares me. Landing scares me. Jumping scares me. Turning and cutting scares me. You got to do them a lot. You got to do them and do them and do them until eventually one day you just realize holy crap, I didn't even think about that. And then you're back. Yeah, I can't fault you, Jack, for that line of thinking. If that's your first race back after all of that injury, um, I, I don't think you're a weak individual, so to speak. And I don't think I don't think that it was intentional. So I think you need to be kind to yourself in that situation. I will say that anytime you have a major injury, there's always residual inflammation. There's always residual scar tissue. There's always residual phantom pain. I will tell you, I've had four, four or five stress fractures in my foot over you know the last two decades. Every single one of them after I've returned to running, I've felt for many months, one up to a year, I would still feel that place in my foot for up to a year because of the residual scar tissue and healing process. So there is some truth to that. There are phantom pains, but they're actually mm-hmm. real. But it doesn't mean that you're going to get re-injured. That's a typical part of the healing process. Heal it up through inflammation. That's why our bodies get inflamed. And so um, don't be, it's a fine line. It's not like I'm giving you advice to go out there and pound it and, and re-hurt yourself. But that is very common to have pain sporadically come and go in a place that's already healed. So um, just something of note with that. Mm-hmm. I had that that phantom pain with the knee for a while. Neither. Interestingly, my left knee, the first knee, stayed longer than my right, which was, surgery was done four months later. But when I actually tore this one, like it was torn, but when I ripped that baby, it was stepping up onto a counter to change a light bulb. I stepped up, took all my weight with my heel up above my hip and really for it. And it just, you heard like a, it just popped really loud and everyone said, what was that? And I was like, oh yeah, I just went like we knew. And this past weekend when we were camping two weekends ago, I got out of a pool like that. I boosted myself up, took my weight onto one leg and stood up and it went, I went, oh, I remember that. It felt different, but I remember it, I think. And I went over and sat next to my, my sister-in-law. I said, I either just tore it or I got rid of the remaining scar tissue. Cause I can like, I can pull my heel 
closer to my butt than I could five seconds ago, but it feels so weird in there. It was disconcerting. And then the next morning I was, I was good. So it was just like, I broke up some scar tissue all at once, but that feeling you immediately, you retract and you pull back and you go, Oh no, no, no. I know what this means. I know what's going to happen. You got to get through some of those, those moments where you take the full brunt of the weight and you bear it and it breaks some stuff up. Yeah. That would be very alarming to anybody Bracken yeah. up in their knee after. Yeah. Um, next question from Louisa Barteldis Farinha. I got a quick answer for this one. Hey guys, I have a question for your Q and a, any tips on avoiding cramps while racing I had a terrible calf and inner, uh, thigh cramps last weekend during Fayetteville beast. And it cost me an age group podium spot. I had my gels, pre-workout, electrolyte, salt pill, etc. Admit I was a bit undertrained as I was recovering from an injury. Could I had done anything else? Would wearing compression pants help? I wore compression socks and shorts. Thanks. Well, it's easy answer. And, and the key here is you self-admittedly was undertrained. And the reason we cramp is because our body is not exposed or ready for that stimulus like it should be. And it's too much and the body cramps. It has very little to do with electrolyte imbalance or your salt tabs. A little bit. They can fall in. But more than anything, it has to do with familiarity with the stimulus. And I guarantee you it's because you were undertrained. Yep. And it, the dead giveaway is the inner thigh cramping. Yep. That's that's the dead giveaway. When you have those little supporting muscles cramp, that's absolutely fatigue. I like to think of it as a circuit breaker. Like your body runs on electricity. And when that muscle gets to a point where your body thinks, I can't fire this baby anymore. And you're asking me to fire it. I'm boom. I'm blowing a fuse. You can't use that muscle any longer because you shouldn't be using it. That's all it is. Yep. Next one. Because I got about eight minutes on my schedule here. I got a good one. And I'm very curious to hear what you say about this because um, you've had a run in with a certain individual a number of times. And this (laughs) is going to relate to you more than anybody. All right. Um, Thoughts on tactics when it comes to other competitors getting physical with you out on course. Whether it's getting boxed in or spiked on the track, physically blocked with a weaving or angling in a stadium race, getting cut off, muscled past, or even elbowed. What's acceptable to initiate, to take as a recipient, or to dish back in retaliation? I've had physical run-ins with the same guy on course four different times, and I took it without retaliation all four times. And while I felt good to bide my time as he blocked me through the entire stairwell at Dodger Stadium before grabbing another gear and I just left him in the dust, da, da, da. I still dream about pushing him into a rail or row of seats next time he pulls that crap on me. Is that bad? What are your thoughts on physical tactics in running? And it's a great question because we don't talk about it much, and it happens. I just talked with my dad about this this weekend. Okay. About how running is a very unique community because it's generally made up, at least initially, of cast-offs. It's people who didn't do other sports or didn't have a social belonging. Not all of them, but a higher percentage than any other sport. And so there's a high percentage of runners who have never played a contact sport and don't know how to react when someone invades their space. Mm -hmm. And then there are always some people who are naturally aggressive. So it makes for a weird mix to start with in running. But my personal belief in the accepted belief in the running community is you are entitled to your space. All right. It's bumper cars. If something comes in, it deserves an equal and opposite reaction. If someone puts an elbow into your space, you return the elbow and you clear your space. You defend your space. 
as an athlete, you should never seek to impede anyone else's space as a runner. That's where our sport differs, but you have every right to defend your space. Now, oftentimes when you're in a pack, there's jostling and you let things go because people usually aren't being malicious. First time, shame on you. Second time, a verbal let them know. Like if this person elbows you once, you give a little elbow back and that's it. The second time they elbow, you let them know, hey, knock it off. And the third time you put them on their butt. Put them on their butt. I think so. What kind of approach? Like a punch to the face or like a shoulder check them into the nearest bush? What are we talking about here? Well, the verbal the verbal retort is generally enough because most runners aren't malicious. Correct. And some, I know the person he's talking about, gets way over worked up on course and who who who, who do you think he's talking about do you not want to say are we talking we're talking age grouper this guy has had a run-in with kevin gelati on course oh okay that was the person i didn't want to say it but got it okay so yeah i mean and 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 kevin has many run-ins with people on course because he is ultra aggressive locked in and is focused on himself so Mm -hmm. a person like that sometimes just needs to be shocked out of their own tunnel vision with hey knock it off and the next time, if they do it at that point, again, it's intentional and you return fire. I think that's the way you handle it as a runner. And if you don't want to. Do you return? Not, nothing crazy. You don't punch them. But if they're constantly elbowing you, you give them a forearm check back and say, hey, stay in your lane. If their elbow is a six out of 10 and they've done it twice, are you allowed to go 10 out of 10 and up the ante? Or are you just no, returning? I don't think you ever go 10 out of 10 on course. But you might go a seven or an eight. You know what I'm saying, though? Like, listen. It's like the whole bar fight. Hey, he started it. I finished it. But then guess who gets in trouble? The guy who finished it. Yeah, I don't think you ever finish it. You just let them know I'm not taking this. But in our sport, when you're going to see this person multiple times, you verbal it, you defend your own space, and then you have a chat after the race. You go up and say, hey, man, this is age group. There's not a million dollars on the line. Give us some space on course. It is a big course. Just knock that off. None of us like this. And that should be enough to get through. But yeah, you've got to you got to defend your own. In fact, there's a video of me looking bad on course at Fenway a couple of years ago when there was an individual going out of their way to impact people and impede their progress. I was there. And the, yeah, and the course um, really was tight and a camera came up behind us as it was happening and they caught me retaliating. What did you do? I threw a, I, I threw a forearm elbow back, cleared my space. Moved in. On, it, it, he had moved in a few times and thrown elbows. And the next time he moved in, I preemptively threw a forearm back. Before we, we were approaching a stairwell, I didn't want to get jostled going down the stairs. And I cleared space beforehand. And that was, to me, that's, that's an acceptable form of racing. Mm-hmm. Did some people think like I look like a jerk in the video? Yeah. But- you're entitled to your space. Okay. We leave that alone. Do you have anything to say about it? Um, no, yes and no. I mean, yes is, I agree. I think your personal space um, is is exactly accurate. And if anybody gets in your personal space and makes contact when there are very many opportunities to not do so, um, strike one, you let it slide just like this gentleman did. Um, if it happens repeatedly, uh, you know, I can get a little fired up, so I may return something and go out of my way to do so, uh, but not without a verbal first. The first time it happens, I'm already going to chirp. I can't help it. 
Yeah. So if that's and you not can enough, tell then... when it's a malicious. If you're in a pack and you get bumped, that's nothing. No big deal. Unintentional. There's a difference between intentional contact and unintentional. Yeah. And watch Hunter McIntyre in his races. When this in the, when, when Isaiah gets in Hunter's way, Hunter forearms him right back, and it's generally over. Yep. You go okay. That's not someone I mess with today. It's over. When Aaron Newell throws a bucket at Hunter, that's trying to do something over and above. So you you have to hit the the, <laughs> the the sweet spot. You don't go out of your way to hurt someone, but you have to establish your boundaries and let them know that's not how this is going to work today. Yeah, 100%. One last question uh, from Zach Shrek. Uh, had a question for your next Q&A. It seems like when you talk about quality workouts, there are generally things like intervals or threshold work, but do, you, but do higher volume workouts count as quality? I'm preparing for the Killington Ultra, so my weeks generally involve a day where I'm getting several thousand feet of climbing over the course of a couple hours. Since it isn't super high intensity or high heart rate stuff, I wasn't sure if this would be considered a quality day. I'm trying to balance quality and, uh, and intensity along with course-specific demands, uh, which is just a fitting question considering we almost answered this in full yeah. already. It certainly can be. If you're coming downhill from that, it almost assuredly is quality. But then it also, that's something you adapt to. This might be considered what we call our midweek long run. It's semi-quality-ish. You go a little easier the next day, but it's not like you take a total non-impact day. You might just go out for an easy run instead of working hard. But the thing you have to think about when it comes to that is we have physiological um, demand and cellular demand. And then we have like physical pounding demand, even going easy can smash your, you know, tendons and ligaments and muscle breakdown. So sure, like systemically your body, like your blood, let's call it is ready to go tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But like your body is so achy and beat up that, um, that it, it has to classify as a quality day, I would say. Yeah. Because of that that alone. So, and as you said, do you need to recover from it? That's your, that's the simplest thing you've ever said that that's super applicable. And then my guess is that dude's got to recover from it. So yeah, that's a quality day. Yeah. Yeah. Steady efforts can be quality. It doesn't have to be interval or rep based. Yeah. Um, we did a patch job episode, Bracken. We got through it. We had, so, so to wrap that up, you're wondering, we did one not too long ago, Q and a, but we made it what, just over a half an hour with our guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll get that guest on and resume the conversation next week. Yeah, because it's it was pretty good so far. Yeah, I mean everyone would say that, but this was a a unique conversation thus far. You're racing tomorrow. When this comes out, you'll be on course racing. Yeah, I got 25k at Afton where we you and I trained together um, a few months back. Beautiful, couple little spicy technical sections, some hills. Yeah, I think it's uh, somewhere in 2,500 feet of gain over 15 miles. So. They're, they're kind of, you know, seeking out every climb they can find mid-course. So it's a lot of up and down, not a lot of flat, but very runnable, dry, some wide trail, good footing, a few technical spots, but like should be able to run quick. So we'll let her rip. Tell the people how you felt this week coming in. I think it's important to to give this out there. Um, Like garbage. <laughs> Absolute dog shit. I told Brack, and I don't know if you guys listened to our Tuesday episode, but I was, was I not yawning the whole time? I could barely stay awake because I'm through this move and not sleeping much. I've been moving all week, not sleeping at my own house, my own bed. And so we're going to see what happens in like non-ideal circumstances. You're, I'm recording this in a hotel room right now. <laughs> so yeah. uh, well, what are you going to do? Is it going to change your race strategy? 
No, we already talked about it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to pound those downhills. I'm going to keep a tempo on the flats. I'm going to manage effort going up. And I'm not going to make no bullshit excuses. Sometimes the best races come when you feel like crap leading in. Well, I felt I haven't had a good one in uh, in, a, in a week. So let's see what happens, brother. <laughs> good luck out there. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for listening, guys, and putting up with our uh, impromptu Q&A. 